surprising number of Christians prefer the New Testament, almost ignoring the Old Testament. The result? But we often fail to understand the Jewish roots of Christianity. Not cool. When and how did the church split from the Jewish synagogue? How can we recover the Jewish character of the church universal? Don't miss our conversation coming up on The Land and the Book. You're on board Flight One, departing immediately for the Holy Land. Our pilot is Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Gager sitting next to him in the cockpit. Charlie, should we expect a little turbulence in today's flight? You know, every flight has unexpected turbulence, so uh, fasten your seatbelt because we are going to take off. All right. That said, here we are on liftoff with story one as we look at current events. Israel's next election. Hmm, that's a story we've been covering forever, it seems, coming this Tuesday. What are the latest polls showing as Israelis prepare to vote again? Yeah, it's almost like they're experiencing Groundhog Day with these elections, one after another that never seem to end. And unfortunately, the polls aren't projecting a clear winner emerging from this election either. In fact, the polling results are sending rather confusing messages. Uh, For example, in a recent poll, a third of the Arab voters said they wanted Netanyahu to remain as prime minister. That was totally unexpected. But as a result, Netanyahu has been trying to court Arab votes. Less than half of all Jewish voters say that they want Netanyahu to remain as prime minister, but in a head-to-head comparison between Netanyahu and all other maiden candidates, Netanyahu comes out on top. In other words, many might not like Netanyahu, but he still seems to be preferred over all the other possible alternatives. Netanyahu's corruption trial is a major factor for younger voters, but it's just not that important to the older voters. They're more concerned about restarting the economy after the pandemic and about the threat to Israel from Iran. Netanyahu's experience in both areas is recognized by many. Israel's vaccination program is allowing the country to begin opening up, and this could also help Netanyahu, who claims it was his leadership that gave Israelis access to the vaccine. The two biggest unknowns that are going to impact this Tuesday's vote are voter turnout and the number of parties able to cross the voter threshold and make it into the Knesset. A party that fails to get at least three and a quarter percent of the total votes cast isn't awarded any seats in the Knesset. Anyone who voted for those parties, in essence, wastes their vote. One Arab party actually dropped out of the election Tuesday and encouraged its supporters to vote for the joint Arab list so their votes wouldn't be wasted. The 120 Knesset seats are then apportioned to those parties that did cross the threshold based on the overall percentage of votes they receive, and that's why voter turnout is so crucial. Those parties on the bubble desperately need to get their supporters out to the polls, and they need to convince them that they're not wasting their vote in choosing that party. The other major parties are doing everything possible to encourage their supporters to head to the polls one more time. And in the process, some are trying to suck votes away from the smaller parties. Now, in a relatively small country like Israel, John, a few thousand votes could be the difference between a party making it into the Knesset mm-hmm. or not. Now, we'll know how many votes each party received soon after the voting ends, but we'll be talking about this next week because it's going to take several weeks at least Hmm. until we know who's going to be the next prime minister. Well, the Palestinians are also planning to head to the polls in two months to elect the Palestinian Legislative Council. And that election will be followed by the election for Palestinian Authority president on July the 31st. What's the latest update on these elections and how will countries like Jordan and Egypt be possibly impacted by the vote? 
Yeah, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas actually met this last week, and they said things are on target. And so right now, though, it looks like Hamas could potentially do quite well in that first election, especially in the West Bank. Part of the reason is the voters are completely dissatisfied with the political corruption of those in power. Uh, nepotism, misuse of funds, all those kind of things are rampant. Uh, the elite have become very wealthy while the average Palestinian worker remains impoverished. Hamas promises to bring a change and people might vote for them simply as a way to vote against those who've abused their power for so long. Now in Gaza, the, the situation could be reversed. Hamas has been in power there and they've abused their power while bringing the majority of the population to financial ruin. Given the opportunity, many in Gaza might vote to oust Hamas. Uh, that leads to the second major item that could impact their election. Hamas is more unified as a group, while the Palestinian Authority, it's quite divided. A younger generation of leadership wants to take over power, but they're being held back, marginalized, or being forced out altogether by senior leadership. Palestinian Authority President Abbas ousted Yasser Arafat's nephew, Nasser al-Kidwa, from the party uh, rather recently because Kidwa criticized the current leadership and said he would present his own list of candidates to challenge the official Palestinian Authority slate. Uh, and there are reports that Kidwa is being supported by Mohammed Dalan, another rival of Abbas who lives in the United Arab Emirates, and by Marwan al-Bargudi, who's in an Israeli prison for helping plan the murder of Israelis during the Second Intifada. So three major opponents to uh, Abbas are actually seeming to join forces right now. Now, in terms of how that vote's going to impact Jordan and Egypt, well, both countries are actually quite concerned about a possible Hamas takeover. Egypt fears a Hamas uh, takeover because Hamas is supported by Turkey and because they're affiliated politically with the Muslim Brotherhood, which the Egyptian army overthrew in a coup. They see Hamas and the Muslim Brotherhood as an ongoing threat, and Jordan has the same concern, especially since about half of Jordan's population are Palestinians, and many of them favor Hamas. A Hamas victory could motivate those Palestinians to try to overthrow the current Hashemite monarchy and replace it with a Hamas-affiliated government in Jordan. Hmm. Jordan's leadership is very wary of possible unrest in their country as a result of the vote. Now, all of that assumes, of course, the elections will actually be held. <laughs> they say they're on target, but we'll have to wait and see. And if you joined us mid-flight, this is The Land and the Book. We're headed for the Middle East, and we're looking at current events that have been unfolding there all week long with our pilot, Charlie Dyer. Archaeologists in Israel this week announced the discovery of Bible scroll fragments in another cave at the Dead Sea. What's the significance of the discovery, and do these scrolls relate in any way to what we know as the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah, many of the headlines did connect it with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found, of course, 75 years ago. Uh, these new discoveries are not directly related, though their discovery is still important. Uh, the original Dead Sea Scrolls were dated from around 200 years before the time of Jesus up until the destruction of the Kingdom of Judea by the Romans, and they were found at Qumran uh, and in caves right around that area. The scroll fragments announced this week were from caves farther to the south along the Dead Sea, and they date to the time of the second Jewish revolt against Rome. That's about 100 years after the time of Christ. Uh, the announcement capped a three-year expedition to map out and explore as many caves as possible in an attempt to stop robbers and treasure seekers, and so far they've only explored about half the cliffs in that Dead Sea area. Now, in regard to the scrolls, two dozen tiny fragments were found that comprise 11 lines of Greek text. Uh, they're translations of Nahum chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, and Zechariah 8, verses 16 and 17. 
The fact that they're in Greek is unusual. However, the name of God appears in that section, not in Greek, but in Paleo-Hebrew script that was used in the Old Testament period and by observant Jews during the Second Jewish Revolt. Uh, The archaeologists also found a stash of coins from that period. Now, what I found amazing is that in addition to these fragments and coins, they also uncovered the oldest woven basket ever found in the world from the Neolithic period. Uh, and it was actually quite large. And they found the mummified remains of a six to 12 year old child from around the early Bronze Age that had been preserved in the dry climate of the region. Now, these caves were used as hideouts throughout that historical period. And that's why they're finding so many different fragments and pieces from so many different times. Now, as I've said, they've still only surveyed about half the cliffs in the region. So this announcement is also a reminder that there's still much waiting to be uncovered. Well, glaucoma affects 3 million Americans, second leading cause of blindness worldwide. But Israelis have got an interesting solution. What are the details, Charlie? Yeah, you know, there are a number of treatments already, but they have their own issues. People tend to have poor compliance record when it comes to using the eye drops. And there's a laser surgery, but It's rather uncomfortable and cumbersome, and that's why this new treatment by Israeli startup Belkin Laser could be a game changer. They've developed an alternative laser treatment that delivers more than 100 laser beams through the white part of the eye in seconds without coming into actual contact with the eye. Uh, Their image processing software determines precisely where to aim the beams, and the process is fully automated. Uh, The system's designed so that it can be used by both ophthalmologists and optometrists in their office, hopefully making the treatment widely available. It's being studied right now in Europe and in Israel. Uh, They hope to have final approval there sometime this year, and then they're going to approach the FDA for approval here in the States. Someday soon, those with glaucoma might find the treatment to be as simple as sitting in front of another piece of equipment in the doctor's office. When that day comes, we can all thank the team of specialists from Belkin Laser in Amazing Israel. Thank you, Charlie. Hey, I'm looking forward to your devotional later on. A fascinating character, Saul, and this theme of first impressions. We didn't have those right when it came to Saul, did we? Uh, We did not, and this week and next week, we're going to look at first impressions of two individuals. All right, all coming up next on The Land and the Book. A surprising number of Christians, quote, prefer the New Testament, almost ignoring the Old Testament. The result? We often fail to understand the Jewish roots of Christianity. Not cool. When and how did the church split from the Jewish synagogue? How can we recover the Jewish character of the church universal? Well, don't miss our conversation coming up next on The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager, inviting you to think with me for a moment about the Jewish people in your life, friends, neighbors, maybe co-workers. Are we being strategic in connecting them with Christ? Here's a thought. Sharing a New Testament with your Jewish friend. Good idea, bad idea. Beth Tavlin is on the administrative staff at Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. You've got a story along these lines. I do. I was invited to a friend's holiday gathering, and there was going to be a Jewish man there Mm -hmm. and his girlfriend. And so I took some New Covenant or New Testament books and wrapped them in Hanukkah paper and gave them to my friends and uh, presented them as the potentially the most valuable gift you will ever receive. Really? And left it at that. A year later, I was invited back to the same family's party, and this man who I gave the New Testament to yes. came up to me and said, 
wow, I gave this book to someone I worked with and it changed his life. And I said, oh, that's great, but do you want another one? And he said, no, I don't. But it really did change his life. He, he started going to church. He started reading it all the time. He started sharing with me. It was really amazing what the Lord did through that one little book. Okay, not to the friend that you'd intended it for, but to his friend. Right. Yeah. You never know. That's right. You never know who God has in mind. Thanks, Beth. Beth Tavlin here on The Land and the Book. Dr. Gerald R. McDermott is Anglican Chair of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. He's the author of several books, including Everyday Glory and Israel Matters. He's also the editor of The New Christian Zionism. His research primarily focuses on Jonathan Edwards, Christian understandings of other religions, and the meaning of Israel. Hey, welcome to the land of the book, Gerald. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. Let me just begin asking, shouldn't it be obvious that Christianity is Jewish in its origin? I mean, the fact that you have edited this book suggests maybe it isn't so obvious. Your thoughts? Well, yes. The unfortunate thing is that many Christians think that Jesus broke from Judaism in the first century. He completely departed from the Judaism of his day, and that Judaism teaches salvation by good works, whereas Christianity teaches salvation by grace. And so Jesus was starting a whole new religion of grace that was radically different from Judaism. And I would submit to you, John, and your listeners that all of that is wrong. Hmm. Well, what difference, some might ask, does the Jewishness of Jesus really make? Is it, is it that big a deal after all? Well, it tells us, for one, that if Jesus was really a Jew, and he was thoroughly a Jew and a practicing Jew, doing everything the Jewish men of his day did, then we had better know the Old Testament, because the Old Testament tells us about the Jewish background of Jesus. And unfortunately, most Christians don't uh, know very much about the Old Testament. And we also need to know that Jesus did not come to try to start a new religion that was radically different from Judaism, as I just suggested. After all, it was Jesus who said, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. But many Christians believe that Jesus did come to abolish the law and the prophets, or at least they act that way. And the result of this thinking that Judaism is radically different from Christianity is something that's very prevalent in our churches, unfortunately, cheap grace. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's idea that Jesus came to reject Jewish law, and therefore, as long as we accept the fact that we're forgiven, we can live like the devil. But that is absolutely contrary to everything that Jesus taught, especially when you understand him as a Jew. Let me take you back to this question about uh, our our preference for the New Testament. What is it that uh, drives us to set the Old Testament aside? Well, I think it's that most Christians rarely read the Old Testament. If they read it, they would realize how important it is. And I think a lot of them have been taught by their pastors, unfortunately, who got it from their seminary professors, unfortunately, uh, replacement theology, that, uh, which is the idea that the Gentile church has replaced Jewish Israel in God's affections. So they're getting it from what they've been taught, and unfortunately, on Jews and Judaism and the Jewishness of Jesus and the Jewishness of Paul, they've been taught some things that are not biblical. Dr. Gerald McDermott is the author of several books, including Everyday Glory and Israel Matters. He's the editor of the new Christian Zionism. 
Let's, uh, let's keep going with this idea of replacement theology. You've brought it up. If Christianity is inherently Jewish, and it is, how does that impact the replacement theology movement that seems to be gaining steam and big time in America? Yeah, well, first of all, John, I should probably explain more clearly what replacement theology is. Sure. This is the idea that God once made a covenant with Abraham and all of his progeny, which means the Jewish people. But then in the first century, 2,000 years ago, when most Jews did reject the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, God transferred the covenant to the Gentile church. So he no longer loves Jewish Israel as he once did. He only loves Jews who accept Jesus and only loves the Gentile church. The problem, though, with that, John, is that Paul says just the opposite. Paul says in Romans eleven twenty-eight, and he's talking here about the majority of his fellow Jews who have not accepted Jesus as Messiah yet. He says they are still beloved in God's eyes because of their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they're still beloved. They're still the chosen people. But unfortunately, replacement theology says that the Jews who have not accepted Jesus are no longer God's chosen people, which is unfortunate because Paul makes it very clear they still are. Now, now that doesn't mean that all Jews are going to be saved just because they're Jews. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most Jewish theologians don't accept that. But it does mean that God still has a special love for the Jewish people. Well, you know, and that gets uh, trickling down into some very practical ideas, everything from how we relate to the modern nation-state of Israel to how we treat our Jewish neighbors. It gets very practical very quickly, does it not? Well, yes. I mean, we tend to think that the Jewish man and his wife down the street who go to the synagogue must be believing something completely different from what we believe, must be worshiping a God completely different from the Father of Jesus Christ. When they get their beliefs from the Old Testament and Jewish reflection on the Old Testament in what's called the Talmud, and the New Testament is thoroughly based upon the Old Testament. So, you know, Jesus is God. Father is the God of Israel. So, we worship the same God. Now we have, you know, different ideas about Jesus, but when it comes to everything else, our ideas about God are almost identical. Well, let's transition to Christ himself, um, the namesake of our faith. Uh, the question, did Jesus actually plan to start a new religion, is what uh, many people seem to think. Your thoughts? No, he did not. He said to people who were thinking that at the time that he was teaching, he said, do not think, this is Matthew five seventeen. do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to say, truly, truly, until heaven and earth pass away. And John, it's still morning here in Pittsburgh, where I am, and, and heaven and earth, as I look out my window, are still here. Not an iota, that's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, or a horn, that's what it is in the Greek, karion, which is the smallest stroke of the pen in Hebrew, will pass from the law until all, and he means all of the law, is accomplished. And then he goes on to say, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Now, what commandments is he talking about? He's talking about the commandments in what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which Jews call Torah. And anyone who teaches others to do the same, to relax any of the least of these commandments, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Hmm. So 
Jesus is calling for absolute reverence toward the first five books of the Old Testament. That does not sound to me like someone who wants to start over and throw uh, the basis of the Old Testament out. Not at all. In fact, as I listen to you, Dr. McDermott, uh, I'm struck by the thought, perhaps we have given the Tanakh far too little consideration. You know, we, we, we've just sort of dismissed those laws for our day. Well, John, you're absolutely right. And yet Paul suggests that we should not dismiss one letter of it, uh, one iota of the Old Testament, uh, as Jesus just said, the least of these commandments. You know, Paul takes an obscure text from Deuteronomy where Moses says, don't muzzle the ox when he's treading out the grain. And Paul says it still has relevance to us, even if we're not farmers, Mm -hmm. and, and even if we're Christians who read primarily the New Testament. And what it means for us, Paul says, is pay your pastors. They deserve it. Now, we would say, what? How did he get that out of don't muzzle the ox? Well, it's, no, it's understandable. But Paul's point is, every last bit, and this is Jesus's point, every last word in the Old Testament has meaning and relevance for and to Christians. Our guest, Dr. Gerald McDermott, is a researcher and writer, primarily focused on Jonathan Edwards' Christian understandings of other religions and the meaning of Israel. We're talking about understanding the Jewish roots of Christianity. So how and when did the church split from the Jewish synagogue? Well, scholars have changed their view on this. Now, in this book that we've got coming out called Understanding the Jewish Roots of Christianity, John, we've got probably the best scholar in the world on this subject. And he argues in his chapter in the book that whereas scholars used to say the church split from the synagogue in the second century, right after the closure of the New Testament, now scholars are recognizing it probably did not happen until the fourth century under Constantine, which means that for the first three centuries of Christianity, there was a lot of going back and forth of Christians between the synagogue and the church. They did not see one another as fundamentally different. They saw one another as worshiping the same God, but Mm -hmm. in slightly different ways. Some recognized the Messiah had come already, and some did not believe the Messiah had come, but their faiths were intimately related. So how can we recover the Jewish character of the church universal? Well, I think, you know, because the Old Testament is 77% of Protestant Bibles and 80% of Catholic Bibles, we need to read the Old Testament more. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we need to ask our pastors, and if pastors are listening, the Old Testament is three quarters, is more than three-fourths of the Bible. Why are our sermons maybe only one-tenth of the time, if that, on the Old Testament? Mm. So I think, you know, reading the Old Testament, preaching on the Old Testament, um, recognizing that the Old Testament teaches grace, just as the New Testament does, and yet The New Testament also teaches the law of God, just as the Old Testament does. And I would, one final thing I would say, John, is something that blew me away about 25 years ago when I was standing on the Sea of Galilee leading a tour group, and my guide pointed out Matthew 23, which I had read hundreds of times, but I had never really heard it. And Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, and Jesus says to his disciples, Practice and protect whatever they tell you, the Pharisees, whatever the Pharisees tell you. Don't do what they do, but practice and protect whatever they say. I had never seen that. That blew me away. 
Jesus was recommending the teachings of the Pharisees. So I think for our listeners, think about that. That was standard Jewish teaching in the first century. Jesus was recommending standard Jewish teaching in the first century. You know, I'm sitting here listening to this uh, conversation, and I wonder if part of our hesitation to delve further into the Old Testament is because we have lopsided the notion of grace. We have stretched it. We have thinned it out without a proper balancing sense of God's justice, which you do see more in the Old Testament. Your reaction? Yes, uh, we have a very distorted view of grace because of our lack of engagement with the Old Testament. Jesus said something that was very Jewish. He said, I mean, since he was a Jew, he said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Now, usually Christians will think if we love Jesus, we don't really have to obey because we're forgiven. And if we're, if we're concerned too much with his commandments, then we're legalists and we undermine grace. That's just the opposite of what Jesus taught and just the opposite of what Paul taught. So it is necessary that we understand the Old Testament context, the Jewish context, to properly understand grace. Otherwise, we will be teaching and living greasy grace uh, and sloppy agape, not true biblical grace and not true biblical agape love. Now, this has been a fascinating conversation, Understanding the Jewish Roots of Christianity. It's a book that uh, Gerald McDermott has edited. A link to that book and more at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Up next, you're going to love the questions that have come in from listeners like you, passages that folks are puzzling over. That's our focus next on The Land and the Book. So how's your day going? Pretty good? It's about to get better, I can guarantee it, because it's always a good thing, a better thing, when you walk away with just a bit more understanding of God's Word to us, the Bible. And that comes to us as we study the questions that listeners have sent us, and Charlie Dyer opens the Bible and kind of untangles some of the knots for us. Let's get to our first question from Jim. He says, in a study of Habakkuk, it seemed to me that chapter 3 was much like one of the Psalms. He seemed to draw on several parts of the Old Testament in the writing. My question, was Habakkuk written after all of the Psalms? Yeah, he was not written after all the Psalms, though most of the Psalms were probably written by that time, and certainly Habakkuk shows familiarity with the Psalms. Uh, He prophesied during the end of the kingdom of Judah, uh, either during the reign of Josiah or Jehoiakim. Uh, We know the Babylonians were rising on the east, and part of his message was uh, that God was going to raise up the Babylonians to judge Judah. Now, most of the Psalms were written by then, uh, including all the Psalms, obviously, by David. But there were some Psalms written later. Uh, Psalm 137 was written by the captives who were taken into exile in Babylon. That's the one, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. And Psalm 126 was written after the people of Judah returned from captivity, uh, which means it was after 539 BC. It says, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. But I have no problem assuming Habakkuk was familiar with many of the Psalms. From Peter, this question, was Philip the apostle the same Philip who met the Ethiopian official on the road in Acts 8? Thanks for any information. Uh, The the short answer is that they're not the same individual. Uh, But to explain why, I'm going to start in Acts 21, verse 8. Paul and Luke were on their way to Jerusalem, and Luke says they reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven. 
Uh, the seven were the seven, some would say the seven deacons who were chosen back in Acts chapter 6. Philip, who is in Caesarea, was one of the original deacons. Uh, now, by identifying him as a deacon and as an evangelist, I think Luke's also reminding his readers of the events in Acts chapter 8. After the martyrdom of Stephen, a time of persecution arose, and Acts chapter 8 says, All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So Philip the apostle would have stayed in Jerusalem. Philip the evangelist, or Philip the deacon, would have scattered. In fact, then in verse 5, he says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria, proclaimed Christ there, and uh, Philip preached there. At the end of that chapter, we're then told that people believed Philip as he preached the good news. And then in verse 26, an angel said to Philip, go south on the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So the Philip who went uh, from Jerusalem to Samaria and then met the Ethiopian official was Philip the evangelist. And finally, at the end of the encounter with the Ethiopian official, Luke writes that he traveled about preaching the gospel until he reached Caesarea. And that's where we find him later in Acts 21. So if you trace that individual around, the Philip who led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ is the Philip who ends up in Caesarea. And it was Philip who was one of the seven who was chosen, not Philip the apostle. The Land and the Book comes to you as a courtesy of this very kind station and Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Alan tells us he and his wife really enjoy listening on the Internet. He says, we're studying the book of Zechariah and have questions about the four chariots in Zechariah 6. Are the four chariots there related to the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6? And if so, why is the order different? Yeah, at first glance, you know, you think there are some similarities in the sense that both chapters describe horses with different colors, but uh, the colors of the horses aren't exactly the same, and the order of the horses is different. Uh, the fourth chariot, it says, has spotted or dappled horses, while the fourth horse in Revelation is pale or ashen. In fact, the Greek word there is chloros, which has the idea of pale green. And it also looks like the purpose for these horses is different. In Zechariah, the chariots uh, are sent directly from God, and depending on the translation, they're either four spirits or the four winds of heaven, but they've been standing in the presence of God, which means they have authority from heaven itself. Uh, in Revelation, the four horsemen don't come directly from God's presence. In fact, uh, they seem to be not avenging forces acting for God, but uh, they're connected uh, with forces opposed to God. They ride with the Antichrist, who is Satan. He, in fact, he's the rider on the white horse. Uh, the first of the four horses. Uh, one last point, the, the eight night visions there in Zechariah seem to form a, a chiastic pattern. That is the first and last visions focus on horses or chariot riders being sent out for God. And uh, in the first vision, the earth's at rest while Jerusalem and Judah are not. By the final vision, God sends the chariots into the world, apparently to judge the world, beginning with the power from the north, and the point is that God's judgment is about to pass from Israel to the nations. So uh, there's similarities, but they're not the same individuals or the same time frame. Hong Chan has a question about John 21, verses 15 through 19. The apostles are on the beach. Jesus is grilling them fish. And in the Greek, Jesus asked Peter if he loved the word agape, him. Peter responded that he loved phileo, Jesus, I assume that Jesus actually spoke to Peter in the Aramaic, and I'd like to know whether there are also different words for agape love and phileo love in Aramaic, whereas it does not exist in English. Yeah, and I don't know of two Aramaic or Hebrew words for love that would have those same subtle distinctions as the, the Greek words agapao or agape and phileo. And that leads me to assume that Jesus was actually speaking Greek in this particular instance. Hmm. I don't see that as a problem since the disciples would have been multilingual. You know, we know Peter could speak to Cornelius in Acts 10 using Greek. 
which would have been the common universal language between cultures in that region. Uh, I assume someone growing up in Galilee would have been able to speak Aramaic and Greek fluently. Now, while I can't prove the conversation in John 21 was in Greek, the fact that the entire point of the passage turns on the difference in meaning between those two words, Mm. well, that suggests to me that it was conducted in Greek. Peter might have thought it a bit unusual, but if Jesus started speaking to him in Greek, well, then Peter responded in the same way. Yeah, interesting. Renate says, in the story of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite don't just walk on by the injured man. They cross over to the other side. Could the fear of defilement have been their primary concern? Just wondering, especially in light of John 18, verse 28, where it says it was early and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium that they might not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Was the issue or protocol tradition or the law? Your thoughts. I think you hit the nail right on the head when you suggested the issue here is their concern over external defilement. Uh, That's true in the story of the Good Samaritan and in the religious leaders before Pilate. In fact, it's the very issue Jesus condemned the scribes and Pharisees for in, in Matthew 23. They focused on the issues of external requirements of the law while totally missing the main intent of the law, to love the Lord and to love one's neighbor as oneself. Christine says, it's my understanding that when the UN decided to establish Israel, they were originally going to give back all or much more of the original land that belonged to the Jews. Because the Arab nomads in the area helped so much and fought so fiercely against the Axis powers, the UN decided to designate some of that land to them. And this was Transjordan, which became Jordan. Doesn't this mean then that the country of Jordan already is the homeland for the Palestinians? Well, your historical comments are essentially correct. It was during and after World War I when many of these decisions were made. Uh, The real problem is that the British and French made a number of conflicting promises and agreements. They promised the Jewish people a national homeland, but they also promised the Arabs a national homeland. And sadly, they also made a secret agreement between themselves that showed they really didn't intend to honor the other commitments since they essentially divided the entire Middle East into French and British spheres of influence. Now, following World War I, the Allies did establish Transjordan, that's modern-day Jordan, as the Arab state for the Hashemites. Uh, they had technically been promised more, but the House of Saud took over the Arabian Peninsula, you know, what's today Saudi Arabia. Uh, the Jewish people were expecting to receive the land then known as Palestine, Unfortunately, the Arabs who lived there were upset by the decision. They rioted to force a change. The British found themselves in the middle of the whole conflict, and uh, the U.N. finally voted to partition the remaining land between the two groups in 1947. The Jews reluctantly accepted the partition. The Arabs did not. And when the British left in May 1948, well, that's when the state of Israel was born. Now, my personal feeling is that the issue is far more difficult and complex than most people could ever imagine. Hmm. If you want to read a more detailed explanation, I was asked to revise a book on this subject. It was written originally by Stanley Ellison. The book is entitled, Who Owns the Land? And the revision that I helped with was published by Tyndale. Now, it's out of print, but you can usually find copies available online. And I'd recommend it uh, because we go into great detail on how this current situation came about, and it really is quite complex. In Genesis 11.31, it says, Terah took Abram, Sarai, and Lot and set out for Canaan. Is it possible that God called Terah to go to Canaan, and he disobeyed God and settled in Haran, where Terah ended up dying? Well, in Joshua 24, verses 2 and 3, Joshua says, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abram and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. 
But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him through Canaan. So the verses say that Terah worshiped other gods, and they also stress the call was to Abraham. Abraham followed his father, Terah, who went north, but then Terah stopped, and it wasn't until Terah died that God reissued his call to Abraham again to continue following him into the promised land. Thanks, Charlie. More to come in Charlie's devotional next. From Moody Radio, it's the land and the book. I'm John Gager, observing that one of the saddest stories, I think, in the entire Bible is based on the life of King Saul. Remember him from the book of 1 Samuel? Started out so well, but he ended so disastrously. Why was that? Well, Charlie takes us to a poignant scene or a couple of scenes in his life and his devotional that I'm looking forward to. Right now, though, this Holy Land experience. Thoughts from someone who's traveled to Israel and now shares their thoughts with us. I was in Israel in 2006. One of the most memorable times for me was uh, when our tour went on the Sea of Galilee. And I thought of all the places that Jesus had been, I know that the Sea of Galilee was written in the Bible as where he was, and it is there today. So we're sitting on this boat, and the tour guide is speaking, and a big storm and winds came in. And it just brought us all back to that time when we considered Jesus calming the storm. Well, we were in Israel about uh, three years ago, and my biggest experience was uh, in a boat on the Sea of Galilee singing worship songs. We were with a uh, group of uh, different nationalities, and we had four languages going on at the same time, crossing the Sea of Galilee, uh, worshiping the Lord. It was a wonderful experience, and of course, staying at a lodge there, right on the sea, and reading the Word in the morning, being right there, was it was great. Appreciate that Holy Land experience very much. So, got a confession to make. Uh, Every day, I do about a mile and a half commute from the train station downtown in Chicago to Moody Bible Institute on the near north side. I often wear a hat, which often messes up my hair, and so you take the hat off. Now you're in the lobby, you punch the uh, elevator floor, and, and you're in this elevator with another employee, perhaps that you've never met, and you get off the elevator, having said hello to that fellow employee, look in the mirror, and boing, your hair is poking out in a hundred different directions, and you wonder about what kind of a first impression you just made. First impressions. Well, they're not everything, as we're about to discover in Charlie Dyer's devotional. Charlie? We've all heard the expression, you'd never get a second chance to make a first impression. And while it's not always true, the expression is significant because first impressions often provide a revealing look at a person's overall character and personality. That is, as long as we're not blinded by appearances, like the clothes they're wearing or the car they're driving or other physical attributes that don't really tell us what the person is like on the inside. This week and next, we're going to visit two men who were eventually chosen to rule Israel and see how important first impressions can be. So put on your hiking boots, grab your walking stick, and follow me because today's visit takes us on a scavenger hunt of sorts. And our search begins at a hill just three miles north of Jerusalem. Its Arabic name is Tel El Ful, Hill of Beans. 
but in Old Testament times it was the location of the Israelite town of Gibeah. Our story begins this way in 1 Samuel 9. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, a mighty man of valor, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. There was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So what's your first impression of Saul? Well, at first glance, he seems pretty impressive. He epitomized the phrase, tall, dark, and handsome. And he came from a powerful family. His dad was a man of valor. That phrase in its plural form, men of valor, is used in the Old Testament to describe the most skilled warriors, the best of the best. He's tall, good-looking, and from a respected family. At first glance, Saul seems to have all the right boxes selected. But in this case, our first impressions are wrong. Actually, it's not that our first impressions are wrong. It's that we focused on the wrong first impressions. Let's go back and look more closely at this first encounter with young Saul. When Saul is first introduced, he's sent to find a herd of runaway donkeys. I love the way the NIV Study Bible identifies the significance of this tiny detail. Saul is introduced as a donkey wrangler sent in search of donkeys that had strayed from home perhaps symbolizing Saul and the rebellious people who had asked for a king. Stubborn and rebellious donkeys. Certainly the connection between these animals and Saul should have raised some eyebrows. Saul's father sent him to find the lost donkeys. Now take with you one of the servants and arise, go search for the donkeys. We tend to skip the next few verses because the places listed mean nothing to us. But I want us to look at this passage more closely, so bear with me. First, imagine you were the one being sent on this search. How would you go about it? How far would you travel in one direction before turning to search in a different direction? A half a mile? A mile? Two miles? I suspect most of us would estimate the time the donkeys had been missing and would assume they probably stopped somewhere along the way to graze. Unless they'd been stolen, we would probably expect to find them within a few miles of home. Now, don't get me wrong, that's still a lot of area to search. If they had wandered up to three miles from home, the potential search area is enormous. A three-mile radius would require us to search over seven square miles. That's a lot of ground for two people to cover. But what did Saul do? He left the region of Benjamin and went into the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Now, I see that blank expression on your face. Where's Shalisha? The early Christian historian Eusebius identified it as a town that was five miles east of the Old Testament town of Aphek. Still doesn't ring a bell? Well, as the crow flies, the town was 19 miles northwest of where Saul started. Evidently, he went for miles in the same direction without stopping at some point and saying to himself, hmm, maybe they didn't come this way. When it finally did dawn on Saul that the donkeys hadn't gone in this direction, what did he do next? Then he passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. This is another obscure name, but it's probably a place that elsewhere is called Sha'alabin, which was in the tribal allotment of Dan near Ijalon. Now, the important thing for you to know is that this was 17 miles south of Shalisha. Finally, Saul turned toward home. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. Saul and his servant finally headed east for 14 miles and ended up near the town of Ramah, a mile north of where they started. 
That's when the servant suggested it might be a good time to stop off and talk with the man of God who lived there. And that happened to be the prophet Samuel. So how long did Saul's search take? Well, when he finally caught up with Samuel, here's what the prophet said. And as for your donkeys, which were lost three days, don't set your mind on them for they've been found. Saul spent three days traveling over 50 miles and the donkeys had already been found. I can almost hear the answer when he got home and asked about them. The donkeys, oh yeah, we found them three days ago, just after you left. They were in a field about a quarter mile in back of the house on the east side. Okay, back to first impressions. Now what are your impressions of Saul? He looks good, but he seems to be as senseless as the donkeys he went off to find. He could say he was obeying his dad's command, but his headstrong actions resulted in failure. Someone else had to go out and round up the donkeys while Saul went off on his three-day hike through the woods. But what lessons can we learn from Saul's failure? I'd like to suggest this. We live in a world that attaches great value to external appearances and that focuses far less on character qualities like godliness, honesty, dependability, and wisdom. We elevate the Saul's of life because they look so good, and then we're surprised when they crash and burn. God cares far more about who we are on the inside than what we look like on the outside. We can't do much to change our height, our physical appearance, or our family background, but we can change aspects of our character to grow into men and women of faith and courage and conviction and purity. And those are the character traits that will always give the right impression. And as for Saul, the man from Tell El Fool turned out to be a fool who never amounted to a hill of beans. Great insights from 1 Samuel chapter 9. That's Charlie Dyer's devotional, and that wraps up segment four of our program. You know, if you have yet to tell a friend about the land and the book, I'd encourage you to do that. There's no advertising budget here. Maybe you've noticed that. It's just you and me passing on the word about this broadcast to our friends and neighbors and family members, folks at church maybe, and you can let them know about our podcast. Anybody can listen anytime, anywhere with this podcast available at thelandandthebook.org, our website, thelandandthebook.org. You can email us with your thoughts anytime, and that email is welcome, I can assure you. You connect with us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thelandandthebook at moody.edu. At our website, you'll find all kinds of encouraging tools like information about today's guest, past programs, future programs, and more, as well as important links to the ministries of Moody Bible Institute, all at thelandandthebook.org. Well, that'll do it for today. I'm John Geiger, inviting you back next week for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.